Will you outlast your money? Do you stay awake at night worrying about providing for your family? Are you making the right decisions about your investments? There are many life-changing decisions that arise and questions you want answered when going through divorce or after you've received your settlement. This is the Financially Ever After podcast, where you'll hear stories of women like you and get advice from the industry's top professionals. Here's your award-winning and nationally recognized host, Stacey Francis. Welcome to Financially Ever After. I'm your host, Stacey Francis. And today we're going to be speaking with Elisa Greenblatt, who has a very unique role in the divorce process, the attorney for the child. Well, let me tell you a little bit more about her before we get back to that. Elisa comes to this field from a long experience working with juveniles, many of them victims of crimes. She brings that love of working with children, understanding of working with children to her role. She launched her firm and has been very successful as a matrimonial attorney, being named Legal Rookie of the Year, as well as Rising Star by New York Metro Super Lawyers. She specializes in high conflict, high net worth divorces, and many custody disputes. She is one of the few individuals that can also have the role of representing children, something that not many can do. The trading is rigorous and it is long, and she is uniquely qualified to do so. She lives here in Manhattan with her husband and her two children, loves her role helping children get through the divorce process, representing what they want and making sure that they live the happiest and most fulfilling life post-divorce with both of their parents afterwards. So without further ado, please welcome our guest, Alisa Greenblatt. Alisa, it's good to have you here. And today we're going to be talking about a topic that scares, I think, a lot of people, attorney for the child and what that really means. But before we jump into that, I wanted to find out, I mean, did you dream about becoming a matrimonial attorney when you were a little girl? Tell us the truth. Oh, well, thanks for having me, Stacey. It's great to be here. I'm glad we could arrange this. No, I'll say. (laughs) No? Okay. I did not dream of being a matrimonial attorney. I started off my career actually prosecuting juveniles. I worked for the Corp Counsel Office and worked in family court in mainly in Brooklyn, but also Manhattan, Mm -hmm. prosecuting juveniles. And I did that for a few years and wanted to have a change. And Mm -hmm. this opportunity kind of fell in my lap to try things out at a matrimonial firm, another boutique firm. And so I decided, why not? I'll give it a shot. I do recall that in the interview, I think I said that I have always wanted to do matrimonial law. So I did, (laughs) you know, definitely talk that up. But, you know, I wasn't even sure what was involved. Yeah. However, I was used to working, interviewing victims of crimes and mm-hmm. working with people. And so a lot of that translated well into yeah. matrimonial. So as I got into it, I felt like, okay, I can do this. It you know, works well with it. And I also, having spent a few years as a prosecutor, I was in court daily, tons of cases. And so- yeah. I could have the court aspect of it and the people aspect of it. And it worked well to transition there. 
it brought a lot of skills, mm-hmm. I'm sure. And attorney for this child, it's interesting because not everybody does this. So first off, what is a attorney for the child? Why would any child need a lawyer mm-hmm. if their parents are going through separation or divorce? Well, first of all, only certain attorneys do this. You have to be certified. You have to join a panel of attorneys that does it and have some training. So it's not like you can just become a matrimonial lawyer and then say, okay, and now I'm just going to put my name out there. But generally it comes up in high conflict cases involving custody where you're in litigation, which means Uh that you're in court disputing custody. The two parents can't agree on what the parenting schedule is going to be or what is going to happen with decision making, who's going to be making decisions and how they're going to be made. And so in those circumstances where the parents really can't agree, and and sometimes people have tried mediation, they've tried negotiation to get there, then a court can appoint an attorney for the children. So it's a court appointed position. You know, if you're getting divorced, you don't say, okay, now I'm going to pick up the phone and find an attorney for my child. That's not it. This is all done through the court. We are appointed by court order and we have certain rules that we operate by. And so it's all, there's a very thought out procedure about how it works. And Elisa, when a judge is making that determination of, okay, this is a case where there needs to be an attorney for the child. And, you know, this is a case where that is not necessarily needed. What are the factors? Does your case get appointed attorney for the child? And you're like, oh, oh crap, what did I do? Am I that bad of a person? Like, like you know, it almost sounds like you've been sent to the corner right. and, and you're get, your child's getting an attorney because yes. blah, de blah. Well, sometimes it is. I mean, I think really? that okay. All right. judges, <laughs> judges, at least here in New York City, the judges want people to be able to settle their differences on their own. And so sometimes it is, you know, if you can't get this done, I'm appointing an attorney for your children. I mean, there are a lot of factors. The judges have a lot of discretion in terms of when to appoint. So some judges won't really appoint an attorney for the children for young children because, you know, the role of the attorney for the child is to advocate for what the children want other than in certain very specific circumstances. So if you have, you know, a two-year-old or three-year-old child or even younger, can they tell the attorney what they want? No. I mean, that's kind of ridiculous to even think about. And so some judges for such young children will not appoint someone, but others will. The role can be also a role, you know, you're really a neutral party and it can sometimes be a role that is used well to help negotiate a settlement before Mm -hmm. a full trial in custody because it's a third party. You have no skin in this game. You're You're just trying to do it from both sides. And a lot of times we really try to help people come up with solutions. You know, maybe they hadn't thought of before or maybe they weren't able to get there. And so sometimes I find that judges might appoint an attorney for the children in order to have that other professional, that other lawyer in there who maybe can break some of a stalemate between Mm -hmm. people and get a case settled. Because I think in New York, at least, you know, there's a big goal amongst everyone to settle cases, to have people come up with agreements. 
Yeah. Um, instead of having a judge make a determination. In that situation where let's say you're working with a 13 year old, mm-hmm. which I know from personal experience, they have lots of opinions. So. Yes. <laughs> but how do you play that role as a neutral when that 13 year old's father is contacting you and trying to put his agenda forward or the mother is contacting you and putting forward her agenda. How do you balance that? What the 13 year old might be telling you? A couple of things. As I said, your role as the attorney for the child is to advocate for what the child wants. And mm-hmm. so there's always going to be someone in your ear, whether it be one of the parties or the attorney for a party or both attorneys for the parties, they're always going to be pushing the agenda. And I think that you just have to listen. I mean, one thing that I do is anyone who wants to call me can call me and I will return any call. I'm going to take the calls of the parties, even if they want to talk my ear off about their complaints, I'm going to listen to them. It doesn't mean I'm going to do what they want. I don't work for either of the parents. And first and foremost, I'm going to listen to what the child is telling me, but I also will be talking to third party witnesses. I mean, one of the things as an attorney for the child that you have is you have an order that says that the parents have to sign authorization. So you can talk to their teachers, you can talk to their doctors, you can really talk to anyone who's involved in their lives just to try to figure out what's going on. You know, when you're going through a high conflict divorce, everyone has their own perception and it's high conflict for a reason. Yeah. People, you know, yeah. have trouble calming things down. And when your emotions are high, it's impacting everything that you're doing. And so a lot of times I find that, you know, talking to third parties is really helpful. Mm-hmm. Find out really what's going on. Yeah. And Elisa, it could be that that 13-year-old isn't able to really talk to you about what they really want mm-hmm. because they might be feeling pulled and it different directions and worried and frightened and not wanting to hurt mom's Mm -hmm. feelings or dad's feelings. That's a really difficult position that you have. How do you work through that? And is that part of that back to some of the training that you have to to work in that situation? I think it comes with the training. I mean, I think I also, you know, dig back to training I had when I was dealing with child victims of crimes and interviewing them and you know, how I would speak to them. I don't generally just come out and ask a child client, okay, what is the schedule that you want? You know, I don't like, <laughs> yeah, what that, is it? who do you want to live with? Yeah. Um, yeah. That, in, in so many ways, start with. yeah, that would be really kind of burdening them, mm-hmm. you know, to have to make that decision. Right. And um, so I try to develop a rapport with them. I mean, it's a little difficult now during COVID because we're doing everything by Zoom. And that's hard because especially on new cases, being assigned to represent a child that you've never met and having them share things with you about their life, it's really hard. In normal times, I would have gone to meet with the child at each parent's home if they're living separately. If they're still living together, I would go when one parent is home and then when the other parent is home. And I also would have the child come into my office. I have a lot of toys Uh in my office. I have coloring books, crayons, everything really. And sometimes if 
a kid comes into my office, you know, we'll just sit there and color. I mean, I have a couple of those adult type coloring books. Can I come in and color? (laughs) Elisa, that just sounds so good. It's relaxing. Post COVID, I'm coming to your office, I'm bringing us lattes and if we can color. That just yeah, sounds it's, wonderful. It's really, really relaxing. I have very nice colored pencils. And so, <laughs> but I find, especially with some of the like more adolescent kids, if I can get them engaging in something like that, yeah, then sometimes they'll start to open up. And that's not happening in a first meeting. I'm not expecting it to. So yeah. now during COVID, I don't have those kinds of tools. And that can be very difficult. And so let's hope yeah. vaccine is coming quickly and we yeah. can move past this because I don't think the situation right now is very good for children, especially representing children in high conflict cases. Yeah, I can I can see that. Although I have to tell you a, a real boundary breaker. I've been playing Among Us with my children mm-hmm. and their friends. And it's an online video game. And it's, mm-hmm. I do have to say, it's fantastic. The only thing that's a little, it's a little violent. You go around killing people. Okay. And then you, and you have to figure out who the imposter was that was going around killing you. To, mm-hmm. I, it may not be appropriate, but, right. <laughs> but it is definitely a boundary yes. <laughs> dropper among the kids. I'll have to look for something like that. I think I might yeah. get in trouble for Maybe something Minecraft. violent, but. Maybe the, the Minecraft, there's two versions. The one where there's no death and violence, but. So who pays for the attorney for the child? This is another expense. You're going Mm -hmm. through a divorce. Do they split it? What does that look like? It's another expense and it's a big expense because it's another lawyer on the case. And so you're talking about hourly fees and those fees in a high conflict case can really rack up if you have a lot of motions going on and a lot of court appearances. So the court determines who pays and, you know, as in other areas, the judges have a lot of discretion in deciding how to apportion the fees. You know, it's usually done by looking at what each parent earns, what their financial situation is, and then doing some sort of pro rata split. Although there are some situations where if you were to do a a pro rata split, one person would be paying 100%. And then you get into the concept, I'm sure you've heard of skin in the game, the person who's not paying anything has no skin in the game. And really, a lot of the judges think should contribute. And I think there can be some value to that. And so it gets divided up. And I mean, like any other divorce attorney role, I mean, get paid a retainer, we send out our bills, you know, bill for our time hourly, and it's expensive. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And is it the judge, the judge who appoints, do they appoint the person or does the couple have any say or role in, we love Elisa, we really want to work with Elisa, mm-hmm. or we just met Joe Schmo, we mm-hmm. don't like him. Right. So, I mean, usually in Manhattan, the judges all ask, okay, are the two sides able to agree on someone? And mm-hmm. so the lawyers will talk. I mean, we all know who the people are who do this kind of work. And so the lawyers will talk and try to agree upon someone usually. Yep. Yep. And then if there isn't any agreement, most of the judges will say, okay, well, each side can submit names of two or three people. And then the judge will choose from the list. Mm-hmm. So I tend to think it's a good idea to try to agree upon a person, but 
if you can't, then the judge is just going to pick someone, but most of them will let you Mm -hmm. make recommendations. So as the attorney for the child, do you ever find yourself in a situation where you're asked to speak to like the child's therapist or, you know, his or her school, or is that not appropriate? Oh, all the time. If a child has a therapist, I will speak to the therapist. I probably speak to the therapist more than I speak to the school. Yeah. Yeah. I'm a little more, I try to be discerning about that. I mean, you don't want to bring the situation (laughs) of the divorce. I mean, obviously schools know when kids are getting divorced. I mean, if, if parents are thinking of not telling the school, I would say that's not a good idea. You should be letting the school know this is a big change in your kids' lives. And so the school knows, but it can get really awkward when you bring the school in. And so I, that's not always my first call, but if there is a therapist, if a child has a therapist, that's going to be an early call because especially if there's, you know, a lasting relationship with a therapist, you can usually gather a lot of information that way. Mm -hmm. And if you're working with that child and that child does say, you know, I really hate mom or I really hate Mm -hmm. dad. And I, I just, I don't want to live with them as scenario one, just they don't like them. Or then scenario number two, I don't feel safe with mom Mm -hmm. or I don't feel safe with dad. That's different scenario. But how do you deal with each? So scenario one to one, I'm ticked at dad because dad won't let me play video games Mm -hmm. till 11 o'clock at night. Right. So I don't want to be with dad or I don't want to, I don't want to see dad or I don't want to see mom. There's a spectrum of that. Okay. Yeah. That's happening because one parent's more lenient than the other. Things that, you know, you can explain to the child, okay, well, there are rules in life and, you know, and then, you know, try to get it so that both parties are having similar rules in their homes. And Mm -hmm. that's helpful Mm -hmm. for children. You know, children do well with consistency. And so that can be really helpful. That's something, you know, I find we can work with and try to figure out, okay, is there really a problem here or is it little things like that? Like not letting me do something, not letting me spend time with friends. Yep. That's a kind of issue that we can deal with. If it's, I don't want to spend time with one parent. I don't want to see them where it's getting into a child can't give me reasons, can't articulate any reasons for that you know, we start to think, is there something wrong here? Is something a parent influencing on. the child? And I mentioned earlier that we advocate for what the child wants, except in certain situations. And so that would be one of the situations. If we start to think, okay, this is a situation involving perhaps parental alienation, then yeah. I'll start doing some digging on that. I mean, that's that could be a whole nother show. What is parental alienation? We could, yeah. you know, get a therapist on the line and and do a whole hour on that or 20 hours, but that is much more complicated. And then we have to look at, is the child trying to sever a relationship with one of the parents? And if that's the case, you know, that's usually a reason where there is parental alienation. It's a reason for the attorney for the child to advocate for what is in the child's best interests. Uh versus what the child wants. But Uh if it's just a child saying, like, I just prefer my time with mom, like, I'm just more comfortable with mom. I'll go to dad on weekends. But mom was the one who was always there. Mom was the one who was always helping my homework. Mom took me to the doctor. That's where I want to be more. I just want to have a home. 
I'm going to advocate for that. I mean, that's not saying that the child wants to cut off a relationship, but, you know, kids understand that, uh-huh. you know, there are differences between parents and sometimes there are differences in the amount of time they want to spend with each parent. And so yeah. that's something that I definitely can advocate for. Your other question has to do with is it, if a child is in danger. That's a tough one, right? And also, what is your responsibility, you know, as the attorney to, right. to try and uncover that if you have that fear? Right. So we're not mandated reporters. And can you explain for our listeners like what that means? Yeah. So a mandated reporter is obligated to call in any suspected neglect or abuse that's going on. And so therapists are mandated reporters at the school. The teachers and school personnel are mandated reporters. Police are mandated reporters. And so they must call that in to what's called the state central registry. And lawyers are not that. So attorney for the children, I'm not a mandated reporter. But if I think that something's going on, then I'm going to take steps to do something about it, which usually is contacting the attorneys, Uh um, possibly contacting the court, voicing the concerns. I mean, there are some situations where start advocating for supervised visitation because of things, the concerns that are going on. In those situations, I might want to do a deeper investigation, speak to the school, has anything been said, and just really look into it. It's tricky though, because you also, these are kids, and you mentioned earlier, like kids are pulled by each parent. And so it's sometimes hard to figure out what really is going on. And so that's another reason, like with supervised visitation, that's usually with a social worker who is more of the professional who can look at the dynamic. I mean, they're also with, you'll have an attorney for the child, but the court at the same time, or even later on can decide to do what's called a forensic examination. Forensic evaluation, the court appoints either a social worker, a psychiatrist, or, or uh-huh, uh-huh. psychologist to do an evaluation of the family. And so, you know, a lot of times their role is looking into those kinds of allegations. Yeah. And I think that's really a wonderful point that you just made is that that's not necessarily your role. You're not necessarily going to evaluate the family and form a opinion that from a psychological perspective on each party that, again, you're representing the interests of the child and what's best. And I mean, although I would have to say if if I was going through a divorce and Alisa, you were, you know, representing Sebastian and Samantha. FYI, I don't think I'd win because they do not get dessert with me. I am strict <laughs> about, I mean, like I'm, I'm screwed. FYI, but I would be slightly intimidated about you. I, you, you would, and it's not you personally. But just my concern would be, okay, Elisa is, she's looking to see, am I a good parent? Am I sending them to bed on time? You know, am I helping them with their homework? And tell me, you know, is that really your role or not really? I mean, I'm looking at the situation and even though it's not my role to do the evaluation and come out and say, okay, this person it like has some sort of psychological issue. This person's a narcissist. That's not my role. But, you know, I'm 
someone who works in this area and I certainly have my own independent thoughts about things. And so I'm definitely going to take into consideration the whole picture. But I mean, in most circumstances, I'm advocating for what the child wants, not their best interests. And so I'm looking at those things, but it might not change my advocacy. What I see from each parent that that might not. I mean, it's also, I'm just one person. I'm one lawyer in the room. The judge ultimately is going to make the decision about what to do. The judge is going to take all the information and I certainly will give information that I uncover and I will let everyone know, you know, what my concerns are. I don't make the the determination. And I think sometimes parents think that I make yeah, determination. There's that confusion. They, yeah. There is a lot of confusion. There can be confusion that I make determinations, that I can control things, that I can decide that something's going to happen. And I just, I can't. I mean, I'm one other lawyer on the case. Yeah. And I certainly can urge people to do things. I can let my concerns be known to both sides. But at the end of the day, if people aren't going to agree, they're not going to agree. And I can't force that. But parents do get nervous. I think, you know, I represent people going through divorce as well. I don't only represent children. And, you know, in representing my own clients, I think I do hear about their concerns about working with the attorney for the child and, you know, what they should tell the attorney for the child and how the attorney for the child perceives them. And it's a little bit of a tricky and confusing situation. There's no yeah. confidentiality. You know, some parents really tell me everything and give me lots of things to consider. And But there's nothing that's confidential between us. And so that's an important thing to remember. You know, it's others just decide, okay, the attorney for the child is biased. And that's something that's thrown around a lot, bias of the attorney for the child. And, you know, it's something we've all heard. It happens all the time. Again, we're, we're just people on the case as well. We have our own independent thought process mm-hmm. and we gather information. And a lot of times one parent is going to like what we're doing more than the other. Does that mm-hmm. mean that we're biased? It doesn't. Yeah. You know, at the end of the day, I do this kind of work because my practice is a very child-centered practice. And I want these kids to come out all right and yeah. to yeah. you know end the divorce litigation with two parents who love them and who don't want to kill each other and who can go on and be able to coexist. Yeah. That's yeah. why I do it. Yeah. And be good parents and mm-hmm. be able to ideally be in the same room when they get married or graduate right. from college and, you know, all those really important milestones. Yeah. And it can be easy to lose sight of that during the litigation, yeah. that yeah. you're going to be with these this other person who you're divorcing for years to come. And yep. do you want to be the person at the wedding who has to sit across the room and can't even look at your ex? I don't think that's the best place to be. No, that doesn't sound like a fun place to be. It sounds like that's at one of the tables, like the tables furthest away from the Bryman yes. group and and you know why you're yes. sitting there. Yeah. It's okay. The I've been at those tables kitchen. too. <laughs> yeah. It's like right next to the kitchen and maybe the bathroom. Yeah. But well, thank you so much. Are there anything else that we didn't cover that you think is really important for our listeners to know about 
the best way to work with an attorney for the child? The first thing to do is follow your attorney's lead. Ask your attorney about how to handle things. As I just said, it can be very confusing. So talk to your attorney about what the role is. And as the attorney for the child, you don't want people to be so guarded that they're not going to give you the information, but it's understandable that they should be somewhat guarded. And I mean, that's just important to remember. This is not, I am not a friend. I'm not the attorney for them. I don't represent either party. So you've got to be mindful of that, but just be honest. Yeah. At the end of the day, just be honest about what's been going on in your household, what's been going on with your kids. And also, I would say in terms of working with the attorney for the child or going through a high conflict case, I'm going to separate domestic violence cases from this. But if you're in a case and it's just two of you can't get along and it's just such high conflict, I would look look for the ways that you can agree. Yeah. Look for an out yep. and yep. maybe look and see, is there a way to use the attorney for the child to yeah. find that solution yeah. to get out of a litigation? Find that, because, find that middle ground. Yeah. Because yeah. you don't want to be there. Lisa, thank you so much. How can our Welcome. listeners find out about you and your practice? Can you share your, your website? Sure. Yeah. So you can find us at Greenblatt, which is G-R-E-E-N-B-L-A-T-T lawllc.com. We're on Instagram at Greenblatt Law LLC and on Facebook too. So you can find us, my associate Gabriella Formosa. Also, you can find information about her there. And, you know, we're always available. We're doing Zoom consultations now with COVID and we're looking forward to days that we can be back in the office. Yeah. And I will be sure everybody listening we will be sure to add the website and all of Elisa's contact information. Thank you so much for talking about, at least for me, a very intimidating topic. And what's great is much less intimidating of really understanding the facts and how to best work with an attorney for the child. And I also love your advice of take the lead from your attorney, your attorney that you've hired to be able to work with this person in the best way for the benefit of your child. So... Well, thank you very much. I really enjoyed talking to you about this and it was just great catching up. Thank you, Lisa. You're welcome. Today, we covered one of the most complicated topics and that is how you work with an attorney for the child, why one might be appointed in your case and how you can best support your children to move through this transition as healthy and happily as possible. Part of this that Elisa talked about was that it's expensive. It's expensive to have yet another lawyer. And if you're worried about your finances, know that we here at Francis Financial are a resource. You see, at Francis Financial, we can map out your financial future one years, three years, five, 10, 20, 30 years down the line to help you make smart decisions now in the divorce process to set you up for financial success and financial security for the long term. We are fee only, meaning that we're not going to charge you commissions or hidden fees. We are independent, meaning that we can help you put together a portfolio that is truly independent. And the world is our oyster as far as the investments that we can provide for you and fiduciary, which is the most important of all. 
that means by law, we have to put your interest ahead of our own, whether you reach out to us or you reach out to another firm. These are your top three. You want fee-only independent fiduciary. And if you're looking for a great questionnaire to use to interview potential financial advisors that could be a good fit for you, please reach out. Stacy at FrancisFinancial.com. I will send that to you. And most importantly, keep listening. The more you educate yourself, the better decisions you're going to make. And so Francis Financial is here for you and financially ever after coming to you every other week with great content, help you make great decisions about your financial future.